Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are bringing you a special Friday broadcast of the Leadership Now podcast. Aaron and I are not going to do our typical Q&A back and forth, but Aaron's going to share some thoughts surrounding the Truth and Reconciliation Day, and he's going to share that now. Right on. Yeah, so for our, for our Canadian listeners, you'll know that um, the Government of Canada has initiated something called the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And if you go on to the government website, it describes this day as a day to honor, quote, the children who never returned home and survivors of residential schools as well as their families and communities, public commemoration of the tragic and painful history and ongoing impacts of residential schools is a vital component of the reconciliation process, end quote. So we would readily admit, of course, that while the existence of mass graves, which were reported several years ago, have never yet been proven in Canada, that the real tragedy of residential schools is the violation of the principle of sphere sovereignty, whereby the state violates the God-given rights of parents to educate their own children. And we've discussed that on other podcasts, that the state simply does not have the authority to educate people's children. Sadly, it seems to me that this violation of authority has never been corrected and continues to be championed by governments who seek control over all areas of life. We saw this during the pandemic, seeking to control church gatherings, or in 2005 in our country, in 2015 in the U.S., controlling and redefining historical definitions of marriage, forcing people to make medical choices against their will, uh, requiring increasing legislation and control over private property and even over commerce. So all of these, I would say, are violations of sphere sovereignty in that the state has become a behemoth exercising control over all of life. But more germane to our conversation today is the question of residential schools. And I just want to declare out loud and at the onset that I do believe residential schools were wrong. Most sinister of all, however, is the incessant virtue signaling by some members of our government and even some well-paid indigenous chiefs, we'll discuss that in a few minutes, and social institutions who demand on this day that non-indigenous citizens and institutions bear the blame for government residential schools. And what we're told, if you go onto the government websites, there's various activities or exercises that they're encouraging you to participate in. Among those include expressing remorse for participation through smudging ceremonies, through indigenous dances, through the study of indigenous history, or through acknowledging the, the equality of, quote unquote, the spiritual beliefs of aboriginal cultures. Uh, some of our listeners might recall that back in June, June 11th, 2008, to be precise, President or Prime Minister Stephen Harper uh, at the time put out a letter expressing uh, our regret for residential schools. And in that 
in that letter, he he comments on, you know, those that would suggest that Aboriginal spiritual beliefs aren't equal to other beliefs. Well, here we have a statutory holiday that's it's offering what we would call a not-so-subtle endorsement, among other things, of Indigenous spirituality vis-a-vis a biblical gospel. We also have observed that the behavior of past governments, and frankly, the churches that foolishly partner with them to operate these residential schools, why that ever happened is is, is almost beyond belief, uh, was certainly undeniably egregious. And we would also admit that when people descend from mistreated people groups, which by the way includes, I think, all of us, that there can be and in all likelihood are generational consequences attached. These consequences might include things like economic deprivation, even difficulty establishing functioning social institutions, uh, a failure to promote and enforce moral taboos, or, or even the belief that your ethnic group is inferior to others. So we would acknowledge that, that there are generational consequences when groups of people are mistreated or abused. But what what should disturb us in all of this, among other things, is that Christianity is often subtly fingered as the primary perpetrator. And this, of course, goes along with this broader cultural narrative, this lie that would suggest that Christianity is is a white man's religion. It's the the European uh, religion. Well, we want to say Christianity is not a white man's religion. Rather, it includes people from all ethnicities, including many indigenous people. And so as Christians, being that the church is a global phenomenon and it's multi-ethnic in its origin, the Bible speaks about the eschatological church in Revelation 7-9 as being composed of people from all tribes, tongues, and languages. So as Christians, we, we want to, of course, show compassion to those who are hurting or who have been hurt. And we should also be willing to listen and offer biblical counsel in order to correct any lies that people might believe about themselves, even those that stem from their ethnic heritage. If, for example, a person believes that their ethnicity makes them less valuable than others, we would want to correct that. If someone thinks that their ethnicity makes them more valuable than others, we would also want to confront and uh, correct that behavior. But beyond, beyond the individual, beyond the individual pain and hurt that some people suffer from, we also need to, as Christians, further advocate for a just and orderly society based upon the laws of God that pertain to civil order. And if you read the word of God, there are many laws that pertain to civil order. And we can learn from past errors in order to make sure that we have good laws in place in our own uh, particular time in, in, in history. But there are, there are three notable lessons that I believe should be deduced from the travesty of residential schools. And the first one is that we must insist, we must insist that parents have the God-given authority, thus the word sovereignty, over their children's education. That's the most heinous mistake in all of this. Secondly, churches would do well to avoid invitations by governments 
to oversee social programs because they're always politically motivated. And when they go sideways, guess who gets thrown under the bus? We did not see in our own country dozens and dozens of parliamentary buildings burned. We saw dozens and dozens of churches burned in response to the what has now been falsified to be the, the mass grave inquiries. Uh, third, speaking of our courts, one of the lessons we can learn from this is that delayed justice only furthers social and cultural division. Uh, I, I believe that any legitimate land claims or other bona fide injustices against indigenous groups should be expeditiously adjudicated, meaning quickly adjudicated in our courts immediately. Let's stop dragging our heels in this regard so that all people can move forward in peace. The problem is that the ongoing ambiguity, the ongoing delay, the ongoing politicking that surrounds indigenous issues only serves to continue to fragment and divide the population of Canada. Now, it's also notable that some of the lessons that appear to have been learned have not actually been learned because here we are celebrating what we call National Day, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And yet the state continues to assert its authority over, of all things, the education of people's children. They continue to exercise control more broadly over religious institutions. And some of these religious institutions continue to serve as useful idiots to the state by championing an ever-evolving list of neo-Marxist causes. And unfortunately, no one seems to be willing to present some concrete solutions to these historical injustices. And by the way, if you're not familiar with the, the terminology, uh, useful idiot, it's, it's not my language. It refers to a naive person who can easily be useful to those promoting various nefarious causes. And we don't want to find the church uh, in the position of being useful idiots to a state that seems hell-bent and I don't think that's too strong of, of language on uh, promoting an anti-Christian agenda. Well, having said all that, I, I want to get to the, the main point of our podcast today. And that is that the greatest concern that I believe every thoughtful, gospel-centered Christian should immediately recognize about this holiday is this. That the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation actually promotes a false gospel. And it promotes a false gospel by applying guilt to everyone and offering no hope for atonement. Somehow, in these ongoing discussions about the abuses that Indigenous people were subject to, somehow Canadians, specifically of European descent, are considered culpable for the scandal of the government's residential schools. And any suggestion otherwise is ironically considered to be racist. So just think about that for a moment. If you're of European descent, you're a colonialist. You're one of the bad people. And if you put up your hand and say, actually, how, how am I responsible 
for the behavior of people 150 years ago. That's considered racist, even though it's your quote unquote race, your ethnicity that is being identified as being problematic. So despite the wholesale closure of these schools decades ago, the false gospel of this particular holiday is that non-Indigenous citizens are somehow perpetually, perpetually guilty for the sins of their forebears or the sins of people that aren't even their forebears. After all, a large cross-section of the Canadian population descend from people who didn't even immigrate here, here until more recently. So let's talk a little bit about collective guilt and the whole idea of apologizing for past sins, which is one of the encouragements that we receive during days like this. Uh, we witnessed this, of course, among the leaders of the, the Black Lives Matter movement about three years ago. And we continue to witness some of the same behavior from some indigenous rights leaders and their political allies who demand apologies from citizens, I'll say it again, that played no role in the historical injustices that residential school attendees, and we'll include in that residential school survivors, although for some that's probably a bit of a strong word, endured, when we hear about the role of residential schools and the travesty of residential schools, which we've already acknowledged is a violation of government authority, many will go beyond that to point to things like economic disparities. As a primary consequence of residential schools, and as a result of that, demand endless funding to right these wrongs. Now, the problem is this, that some of the most vocal opponents of truth and reconciliation in our country directly benefit from the funds that they purport will help solve these disparities. And many of their political allies likewise benefit politically. For example, now this information is from about 10 years ago, so it's probably gotten worse. But for example, while pontificating about economic inequalities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians, several Indigenous chiefs have been paid salaries, listen to this, ranging from anywhere between $250,000 a year to a whopping $930,000 a year. And if you want to Google this, you'll find a helpful article at Maclean's, maclean's.ca, where they discuss First Nations transparency and, and they take a deeper look at the chief's salaries. Well, I don't think it, it, you have to be of a particular ethnic group or political persuasion to be able to admit that you can hardly be pitied and truly present yourself as a victim of economic injustice when you're receiving a salary of that magnitude. Think about it. Canadian taxpayers have also gone on to spend literally billions, not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions of dollars supporting and compensating First Nations communities, but it never seems to be enough. It just never seems to be enough. There's no actual concrete goal laid out. It's like for generation after generation after generation of current Canadians are somehow expected to continue to fork out billions upon billions of dollars in compensation for the descendants of people, some of whom, not all of whom, but some of whom were legitimately victimized by some early 
colonial settlers. Uh, well, regardless, though, of one's view on how much compensation is sufficient, one thing that every Christian should agree on is that any attempt, and we need to emphasize this, any attempt to assign guilt to a person for the sins of a past generation or even another person that's living in the moment is actually an offense to the gospel of Jesus Christ and hinders actual reconciliation between God and man and man and man. It's also arguable that the very definition of racism that it is, in fact, the very definition of racism, I should say, to allege that every citizen is guilty for the crimes of previous generations strictly based upon their ethnicity. So this message is both morally wrong and must be repudiated. And I, I emphasize this because I'm increasingly seeing Christians, even people in positions of influence over their churches, over schools, people that are involved in politics, quickly donning the orange shirts quickly jumping on the truth and reconciliation bandwagon without critically thinking about the gospel message, the false gospel, the pseudo gospel that's being presented through this movement. So now what I want to do is I want to take our listeners to several passages of the scripture. And let's discuss the question, how is guilt transmitted? And in what way, shape or form are we or are we not responsible for the sins of others? Well, to answer this question, we must, first of all, re-examine the message of the gospel, which first accuses us, if you read the opening chapters of Genesis, for example, it first accuses us of our sin. Gen uh, Romans, I should say. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are a damning indictment of human sinfulness. And then once you start to get into chapter 4 and, and following, you start to see the good news. But the gospel of Jesus Christ first accuses us and then goes on to vindicate the sinner. And this is critical, not based upon our own merits, but based upon the merits of Christ. So in order to have a proper understanding of the gospel, we have to have a clear understanding of what sin is and the subsequent condemnation that necessarily flows from sin and justly flows from sin. So the Bible teaches us, of course, that apart from Christ, we are condemned. Whereas we were condemned because of sin, the gospel message also tells us that divine grace frees us from condemnation as Christ perfectly fulfills the law and atones for our sin. I would remind our listeners of this marvelous verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So foundational to the gospel is the belief that a human being can truly be forgiven for the sins that he or she has committed. Now, every bona fide Christian knows this and humbly worships the Lord God for the undeserved forgiveness that we have received. Now, while this is true, the Bible also goes on to teach us that the devil undermines this truth by accusing us day and night before God in denial of the sufficient work of Christ. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the Bible says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, fortunately, 
because God faithfully applies the righteousness of Christ to the guilty sinner, Satan's allegations do not stick. Sadly, however, false religions continue to perpetuate the lie that you must atone for your own sin through various meritorious acts, going to the church, going to the synagogue, praying to a statue, while never having any genuine assurance of salvation. And how can you? After all, if your salvation is earned, if your sin is atoned for by human merit, but you continue to sin, how can you ever really know if you've been made right in the eyes of God? Now, failing to overturn the promises of God in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, regarding our own sins, one of our enemy, the devil's choice tactics, is to go on and to convince us that we are somehow responsible for the sins of our forefathers. Sins which we should perpetually shoulder blame and shame for. This, this brothers and sisters, is the grand lie associated with the truth and reconciliation movement. It's the grand lie associated with critical race theory. It's the grand lie associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. When you hear accusations like, you should feel guilty for your white privilege, your whiteness, you should feel guilty for that. I know you're not responsible for it. You didn't choose your ethnicity. You didn't choose your skin color, but you should feel guilty for it. Or you should admit you're a racist even when you don't think you are. I remember talking to a friend of mine who bought into critical race theory and he was trying to convince me that I was a racist. And I said, I'm not a racist. He said, well, you're a racist even though you don't know you're a racist. You should apologize for that. Or when people say, say things like you should acknowledge that the land that you, you paid for, that you actually bought with your own money, somehow belongs to someone else. Each of these accusations condemns a person for sins they didn't even commit, sins they probably didn't witness, sins that they only have some vague historical knowledge of. And worse yet, because they occurred in the past and most of the initial victims of those sins have since died, there's no means of even asking for legitimate forgiveness. Instead, you have to go to their great, 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 great grandchildren to hope that somehow they forgive you. And pay the money in order to receive their forgiveness. The reality is, is that the descendants of victims and victimizers seem to be perpetually locked in this endless cycle of offering apologies and expressing regret of somehow atoning for your own sin through honoring this or listening to that or participating in some dance or festivity. But there's no exit door. Like it never ends. It just goes on ad infinitum. I think it's also notable that many proponents of this so-called reconciliation, and I would put that in my own mind in parentheses, have yet to present a clear list of solutions. But rather when you hear them, you're like, okay, what's the actual ask here? What's the ask? And what you hear is them resorting to vague requests. Well, could you honor that's a vague word. Could you honor indigenous culture? Could you listen? That's a bit vague. Could you listen to indigenous stories? Could you join in? Join in. Well, what does that actually mean? Join in indigenous ceremonies, etc. Now, notable among these, these hazy so-called requests, I want to go back to these so-called land acknowledgements. 
which supposedly are part of the, the restoration process. So land acknowledgements are predicated on the claim that indigenous peoples owned or at least occupied the better part of North America and that colonialists just came in and took, took their land by force. Now, not only is this a, a gross exaggeration and blatant misrepresentation of the facts, but it raises many questions like, well, if it's true that North America is stolen land, then why would we not give it back immediately? Why would you do a land acknowledgement on land that you're publicly admitting you stole. Can you imagine if we did a stolen car acknowledgement? Hey, I'm driving your car, but before I drive it to the mall today, or drive, drive it to my favorite restaurant, I just want to acknowledge that I stole your land. I mean, how nonsensical is it if these land acknowledgements are legitimate to, to admit, what kind of quasi-spirituality is this? To admit that you stole land and then instead of giving it back immediately, which would be true atonement, which would be true forgiveness. No, you need to, you can stay on the land, but we just want to keep hearing you say it. We're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. Generation after generation. We're sorry. We're sorry. The fact of the matter is that these issues are complicated. Indigenous tribe tribes stole land from one another. That's a historical fact. People are people. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, there was even wars that broke out between indigenous tribes when the Europeans arrived. Some fought for the French, some fought for the English, some fought against one another. Should they acknowledge then the land that they partner with some European forces to steal from other indigenous tribes? And what about the numerous other global conflicts throughout history through which land has been stolen, for example, in Europe or Africa or Asia? Why are we doing land acknowledgements? Why doesn't everybody do a land acknowledgement? Because here's, here's the fact of the matter. If you trace your history back far enough, everyone, every single human being on planet Earth at some point descends from someone that stole land that was occupied by someone else. And by the way, what do you do if you descend from both European and indigenous ancestors? What right should that afford a descendant of someone who supposedly stole land from one of their other uh, ancestors. But the strangest thing about land acknowledgements is the lack of action associated with them. And this is why they represent a quasi form of spirituality. Again, if Europeans did steal land, how morally despicable does one have to be to acknowledge that they're living on stolen land and then proceed to remain on it? All the while, verbally acknowledging the crimes that you have committed against another people group. I mean, would, wouldn't atonement logically require the immediate return of the land to indigenous people? The fact of the matter is there were portions of land that were stolen by European settlers. There were. And courts need to adjudicate on those and consider the implications of of those concerns. But much of it was unoccupied land. People don't want to say this, but much of it was unoccupied land. Certainly not land that was occupied in any permanent sense of the word. Some of it was legitimately purchased with cash from indigenous owners. They were paid money 
for lands and willfully sold them. Others were negotiated through negotiated treaties. Some were negotiated in good faith. Now, we need to acknowledge that there were differences in terms of how Europeans and, and indigenous people often understood treaties. Some indigenous tribes would understand verbal treaties as being as binding as written treaties, whereas the Europeans tended to think of written treaties as being the only binding treaties. And so much of these, we don't have recordings of these conversations. A lot of this has been lost in the past. These are eggs that have been scrambled that cannot be unscrambled. But I do think there's legitimacy. If there's written treaties that say this particular tribe or this particular group owns this particular plot of land, then adjudicate that in court and let them have the land that is due them. But these, these land acknowledgements are, are absolute nonsense. The proponents of land acknowledgements claim that their purpose is to make one uncomfortable. I've read some writing in this regard, but we want, we want you. One Métis writer in the U.S. was talking about how she wanted people to do land acknowledgements because it would make them feel uncomfortable and confront their occupancy of the land that they're on. In other words, I want you to feel perpetually guilty. I want you to every single day confess your sins, but know this, there's never atonement and there's never forgiveness and there's no salvation attached. You know, in the word of God, it tells us to confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But what if that verse said, I want you to confess your sins, but I want you to know there's no forgiveness. Just keep confessing it. I want to hear you grovel. I want to see you take the knee. I want to hear you admit your guilt for the sins of your great, great, great grandparents. This is the the, the darkness of this, this false gospel. So here's the thing. At the end of the day, you're not responsible. No, no human being is responsible for the sins of another. See, the word of God actually anticipates this lie and offers this corrective. In Ezekiel 18, 20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. In other words, you're responsible for your own sin. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Simply put, you bear zero responsibility for the sins of others, even if they were committed by your immediate family members. God makes it clear he will punish unrepentant sinners, including those who have abused indigenous people. But he will not we do not need to live in guilt and shame about the misdeeds of others. Nor, by the way, do we need to live in guilt and shame about our own past misdeeds if we have confessed those to the Lord. So teaching people, and especially, my word, especially impressionable children, that they must apologize for sins they did not commit and bear the shame of another's transgression. All that leads to is self-loathing, a hopelessness rooted in the lie that you can never make things right, but it also denies the power of divine forgiveness. And these are the lies that are an offense to the finished work of Christ. Frankly, they are anti-Christ and they are anti-gospel. So what then is the responsibility of the Christian in the realm of biblical justice? And while we would repudiate any attempt for the Christian to le live under a sense of condemnation, we would certainly encourage every Christian to live with a sense of conviction 
Preaching condemnation uh, to the forgiven is in fact a denial of the transformative power of the gospel, whereas the Bible teaches us that godly conviction enables us to identify and repent of our sin. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that God awakens us to our sin fully, fully through the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit. And when we are convicted of our sin, his desire is that we would repent of it and resubmit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. Now, there's many ways that we submit to Christ, but one of the ways we submit to Christ, which is important to our conversation, is through a commitment to biblical justice. By God's grace, we have been awakened to the evil of this present darkness, and we must and should be motivated to stand against evil, against injustice. Isaiah taught long ago, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, while we certainly cannot correct the sins of past generations, we can address those of our own generation. Unfortunately, and I want everyone to hear this, unfortunately, many who choose to bear the guilt of past generations with regard to residential schools sadly fail to speak out against the injustices of our generation. How many will willingly today or tomorrow wear an Every Child Matters shirt, but aren't so eager to protest against child hormone treatments or gender-affirming care, also known as child mutilation, or would certainly never march in an anti-abortion protest and may even chastise those as unloving who do. The fact of the matter is that many are blinded by tears shed over the sins of their great, great, great grandparents, but they cannot see the atrocities being committed right in front of them. Or worse yet, they see the atrocities, but they're too cowardly to act because it's not the popular thing to do. We do live in a complex world. And as we study matters of history, we should acknowledge that much of history is messy and history can never be undone by human efforts, by financial payments, or by contrived apologies. However, if we are, first of all, sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, secondly, quick to repent of our own sins, third, believe that we are no longer condemned for past sin, and fourth, speak out against oppression in the present, we will be good ambassadors for Christ. If, on the other hand, we choose to wallow in the shame of our own sin or wrongly bear the responsibility of another's sin, we will become impotent to address the evils of our own generation. After all, if we truly are perpetually guilty for the sins of past generations, as this holiday implies, then we will be forever disqualified and silenced 
to address the horrors of our present generation. Again, including notably things like child mutilation or abortion. So whereas false gospels benumb us to evil by convincing us that we are not qualified to confront sin, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ frees us to acknowledge our own sin, confront sin in others, and to appreciate the blessing of forgiveness in the here and now. I hope this is a blessed word uh, to each of you and will help you to think through some of the issues that we are currently experiencing in our own country and across the Western world. Well, thank you for that timely message, Aaron. Thank you to each of our listeners for tuning in to this special Friday edition of the Leadership Now podcast. Reminder that you can hear this podcast over on the pursuitofglory.org website, as well as the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. And we hope you'll tune in next week to part two of our father-son discussion about uh, over here on the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. 